More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagani. Leadership starts with awareness. Greg McCann knows the family business advantage of shared history, purpose, and vision. At the same time, however, he has seen the tight-knit bonds in the family business can create confusion and exacerbate the situation for those of us who feel like their careers are not their own and that their contributions are not legitimate. Greg is an author, coach, speaker, and principal at the national family business consulting firm McCann & Associates, where he leverages his considerable expertise coaching leaders. We spoke with Greg to ask him how family businesses can create awareness, cultivate a safe space for difficult conversations, and prepare next gens for family business leadership. Enjoy this episode with Greg. I think it would be really great to start off this conversation by understanding why you are so passionate about family businesses in the first place, because I always think that makes for a great, great starter of the conversation, because I always wonder how people end up in this or interested in this field. You know, I'd say in a word, it was serendipity. So I, I grew up in a family. My dad's been a serial entrepreneur. He is 85 this year and has just retired. So I started working in some of his businesses at the age of 12. I was sent off to work in one of the nursing homes as kind of a maintenance guy for a dollar a day way, way back. Worked in a number of them through high school, went to college, became an accountant, worked for one of the big accounting firms, really learned what it was like to not like your job. Um, went to work for my dad's pretty large healthcare company. Uh, loved that. We probably, in hindsight, did a lot of things right from a family business perspective. Uh, went back to law school, got out, tried to start a business with my brother, uh, with my dad's backing. And in hindsight, we probably did most things wrong from a family business perspective on that one. Um, and at 30, had my career midlife crisis and said, what, what do I really want to be when I grow up? And teaching came out of that. And if your father is an entrepreneur, I think teaching is a little bit below becoming a felon because at least felons do something. So it was kind of a big transition for me and my family, but I loved it. Eight years into teaching, the dean came to me and said, what do you think about starting a family business program? And I, I didn't even know what that meant. But I've, I had some truly wonderful people in the field who were very gracious to help me. Uh, an iconic moment sitting on my dad's porch in 1998, we penciled out what became the holistic model that probably half the universities globally follow. Um, and we just had a lot of momentum. I had a phenomenal dean at the start. We had a board of advisors that were just passionate about this. Some student assistants that worked far harder than they really should have for us. Uh, we created the second minor in the field. Then we created the first major. We were pretty close to launching an MBA. And shortly after I started the center, uh, people started to come to me. So I found a, a brilliant mentor, a guy named Steve Schwartz, to help me learn how to consult. And then probably the other leg of the stool was some writing and coaching of the students. So my passion is working with people that want to work 
And I think, especially the next gen, they're often trying to step up, but they don't know how. You know, I often think it's a bit of a tragedy that if you send your daughter or son to wherever Harvard for four years and invest a great deal of time and effort and money, their biggest decision might be if, when, how, and why do I get involved with my parents' business? And most universities don't give them 20 minutes on that. As a business major, that you understand business with no exposure to family business, I think is a grave shortcoming of most colleges. And also, as you said, like there's a there's a real lack of a realistic preparation of what it actually also means, I guess, to work in a family business, which is, uh, I, I call it the, the ultimate mismatch of expectations that when you graduate from university and then very excitedly and zealously want to join the family business. And, you know, the reality of that obviously is very different from what you have been taught. And so that discrepancy is significant in most cases, not just Ivy League, but most cases, I would say. So moving on to today, like, so today you are currently, you're still teaching, you're still consulting. What is, what is currently like your favorite topic within the family business field? So I retired from Stetson two years ago after 27 years in factory, in part just to create a little more space in my life. And I'm devoting my career full-time to coaching and consulting. I think the pivot came from, for me about seven years ago when I was asked to turn around Stetson's executive MBA was able to gather a board of advisors of just world-class leadership experts. And it made me think, you know, this should be brought to family business. So now all the work I do with families and all the coaching I do is based on what's called vertical leadership development. We get sometimes, I would say, and probably justifiably so, criticized for the fact that we make such a clear difference between subject matters that related to the family business as opposed to your normal business. And here again, we need to accept the criticism that because family businesses are more prevalent than other businesses, they technically are the norm, right? Like, so it's a bit of a paradox <laughs> that we're operating in. We think it's a niche, but really it's the, it's the, it's the norm. But can you today justify whether it is a, it's a justifiably separate discussion to talk about leadership in a family business as opposed to leadership in another business? Is there, are there really a set of skills that you feel that are radically different? Is it a different conversation or does it amount to the same thing? I think it's a continuum. You know, you still have accounting and taxes and HR and all that. But I think fundamentally you're combining two systems, the family and the business. And, you know, there's different roles in families. You typically don't say to your daughter, we've looked at your performance as a family member this quarter and it's down 8%. We're looking at bringing in new talent. And you shouldn't say to your sales manager, you've sold nothing, but we love you unconditionally. You get to stay here forever. So finding those two kind of cultures. So I do think on the continuum, the more family there is in the business, the greater complexity. Those those dual roles are difficult. I think family business can be richer, more rewarding, but it is never simpler. I think that before you brought in the next generation with regards to how they're being educated and prepared for the family business, I mean, one of the big topics there is, of course, leadership, because I think anyone who comes into the business carrying the owner's name or even the name that's above the door, there's like an implied expectation of leadership also from the rest of the employees and and like especially from your family. They expect you to sort of like, you know, I don't know what they call it in different family businesses. I've heard it most referred to as step up, you know, to, to the responsibility and the task. So 
that's another I feel like that's, that's another really interesting interesting thing that I've seen and I wanted to ask you whether you'd agree with that do you feel like we have as family businesses, we have unrealistic leadership expectations from our next generation? Or is it something that you actually think, no, like you can't have those expectations because you do transfer a certain amount of that knowledge tacitly over time when you grow up in a business like you have, for instance. What do you think? It's a great question. I, you know, putting on a couple of my hats, professor, former member of the next gen, uh, consultant, coach. Let's take a hypothetical, my daughter. She may get 12, 14 years of training on how to show up in a business setting. We don't give them much help. How do we show up as the boss's daughter? You know, how do I show up credible? And there is that dilemma. I mean, I lived it. If I'm working at Apple or not my family business, I can be reasonably assured that if I get a promotion or get fired, there's probably some objective reason to it. But if you're the boss's daughter, you always wonder, are people sucking up to me and giving me false praise, or are people resentful of me and giving me false criticism? So the core of the program that we developed, the major, was how do I show up as credible? And we said credible had two aspects. How do people in the family business see you as legit? So if that just gives you a title or promotion or a raise that you haven't earned, everybody sees that. But the other side that wasn't talked about as much was how do I legitimately feel that? And the, there was a little gender correlation. We found the young men tended to give air on giving themselves too much credit. Not always, but often. We found the young women often aired on that giving themselves too much credit. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not laughing. It's not, it's not a laughing at, it's just a not surprised laughing. <laughs> well, they say that dynamic only lasts till the men turn 70 and then it changes, but no, no. Mm. Too little, too late, I say so. <laughs> but it's it's interesting, though. I think, and as you said, like, you know, preparedness. I think we were talking a lot about that. And, and preparedness is an important thing. Preparing anyone for a leadership position, especially in a family business, that is highly, it's a highly complex thing to be a leader of a family, a family business. That is for sure. But then it's a highly complex thing to be a leader today, period. Because simply because the amount, the, the increasing complexity that we operate in, the increasing amount of information we're supposed to make sense of as leaders today, uh, make it almost impossible to still run one man show, right? Like I think we're all mostly thinking in, te in leadership teams today, but still there's always that one person or that small number of people who let's shoulder the ultimate uh, responsibility for things. Do you feel like leadership skills have massively changed over the centuries or do you feel like you know still what makes made napoleon successful then will make us successful today like are there certain things that are timeless or do you feel like no look in the face of this kind of age like leadership skills had to change entirely totally different people get to be leaders today than before i mean i think there are some people that just have a force of nature you know maybe george Patton or napoleon or something I think the difference today is, is two things, and this segues into the vertical leadership. It says you have to develop a capacity that you probably didn't necessarily need in the past. And that's things like, I have to be aware of how I show up. I'm the second oldest son, I'm an ENFJ on the Myers-Briggs, I'm Irish Catholic, whatever those components of self-awareness are. So that's more important than ever. I think given millennials and empowerment and people are more educated, you have to have empathy of what inspires the people around you. You know, short of a command and control thing where you just get compliance out of people. To get buy-in, you have to be persuasive. To be persuasive, you have to have empathy. 
And to do that, you have, you have to frame, what's our vision here? What are we really talking about? All the complexity, what's the mark on the hill that will inspire the people I'm working with? And so I think that capacity is one thing. The other one is agility. And I, I like the metaphor of a car with gears. You know, no gear in a car is good or bad, but they have the right place to use them. In our MBA, one of the mantras was, what's the right gear to be in? I'll give you two quick examples. I have a, a client who's incredibly good at advocating, but he's so good at it and overuses it that he overwhelms his leadership team, thinks he's getting buy-in, and he's sort of getting half compliance. Mm -hmm. As he's become aware of that, he now knows that's a gear he can use but shouldn't use all the time. I would even go back. One of the debates I had with many of my colleagues on campus was, to me, education is far too narrow a term. I think development is intimate. You know, saying, Ramiya, what are your blind spots? What are your weaknesses? Mm -hmm. Your grandmother, she has to let go of control. That is not education. That is an intimate development and understanding. Mm -hmm. So education is a little safe. I think you know, there's any place on the planet we should be able to get intimate. It's with our families. Mm -hmm. that's, that's an interesting observation. I, I do think, though, that, you know, you just said it yourself, so asking me that question, what are your blind spots, but that, that level of awareness, right? And I think you, you speak about this a lot, that that level of awareness is not a given. In individuals, in families in general, like family cultures might have very little awareness. As a culture, like there might be very little introspection and there might be very little that kind of conversation or space even that people create very little space, safe spaces for those kinds of conversations about weaknesses and, and ambitions, etc. So I know that you have spoken about this, so how to increase awareness to make this to make that development even possible in the first place, right? Like because now we're talking about the premise where everyone agrees there is a development need. But how about taking a step back? So how do we create that awareness in the family business that we need to focus on self reflection? You know, one of the ways to still this down is you can't work on something until you're aware of it. So without cultivating awareness, you're never going to become more effective. Mm. So how do you cultivate awareness? Well, one is creating a culture of feedback. Feedback is not code for criticism. Most experts say you should give four or five up to seven pieces of positive feedback for every one critical. So say, Ramiya, when you stepped up and explained the software, even though the people in IT could not, it really showed us that you're committed to the company and able to step outside of roles and so on. But giving people positive feedback is really helpful, really powerful, and reinforces the good things they do. Mm -hmm. I'd say the other one is, is coaching. And that can be peer coaching. That can be, I can't tell you many coaching sessions where you just hold up the mirror and let people see a pattern. And all of a sudden, that pattern now becomes a choice. Mm -hmm. Like the advocating all the time. He said that has changed his life to realize he overuses that gear. Meditation. I, you know, a, a meditation teacher I worked with described meditation as solvent and ego. It helps you see your story is just your story. It's not reality. And the other person's story is very important to them, and it's their story, and it's as legitimate probably as yours. Greg, but let's talk about ego for a second because it's probably one of my favorite subjects in the family business field. I don't think we talk enough about ego, and that's my ego, ego's view, basically, of the situation. It's really because it is such a big elephant in the room, isn't it? Because like most conflicts that I see around me in family businesses, even in my own, could probably be resolved if one or the other or all of us would like, you know, just take a step back on ego. 
and, and I think I'm joined in this by a lot of other family business members, is that it's sometimes it's very hard to understand of ourselves when it is that the ego actually interferes because it can be very subtle, right? It's not something that announces itself. And I think this particularly in leadership where you're so exposed all the time, right? Like you're so exposed to your employees, your family, to your customers. What are sort of for you the telltale signs? Like, you know, where you say like, okay, well, these are indicators that your ego is taking the upper hand in the decisions you're making as a leader. That, that's sort of the, the essence of vertical leadership is how do I start to look at my ego? How do I step outside of the system? And that system can be my own ego. So one of my work early on on shadow work was I tended to react strongly to bullies. I thought that was really noble. I was defending people who were being bullied. Through some humbling work, I realized that I was overreacting. In fact, I was becoming a bully to bullies. I was becoming that which I sort of despised. Well, now when I think I'm being the white knight running in to save somebody, I try to pause and really reflect and ask for some feedback on if my reading of the situation is fine. So again, it starts with awareness. Then it's, then it's working on it. I, I love the analogy. It's like getting in shape. You can't say back in 96, I went to the gym a couple of times. You can't say I went to hear an expert speak on working out, and that's all I do. What is your daily practice? Is it meditation? Is it a coach? Otherwise, you're being driven um, by your ego, and you're not even aware of it, but everybody else is. So much of this is about consistency and discipline, and I love the getting in shape analogy as well, because it is one of those very hard things to do, and I think that's why it's a good analogy, or because it's like, you know, we, everyone knows how hard it is to stay or get in shape, and, and I think it, that's why it's a very relevant parallel, but also because it brings in the terminology discipline, which is also another another word that that almost has, has gotten a bad rep, really, over the I think over the last decade, even though... The fact of the matter really is, is that, you know, without discipline, there probably would never be any multi-generational businesses because it's just impossible to do without a very rigorous approach to certain things. Now, applying this to how we instill leadership, awareness and skills in the next generation, because presumably most family businesses would like to see the business being handed over to a next gen even if it's just an ownership that requires leadership too, right? Like as a shareholder, you have a leadership role. How do you think family businesses, so incumbent generations can today say like, you know, what are the things that we can put in place in terms of discipline structures, but also awareness practices that allow our next gen to successfully draw their career path within the family business and attain a leadership role that is satisfactory to them? Great, great question. So let me see if I can segue. So I, I wrote down three points I wanted to convey from what you had just talked about. The first one was the Center for Creative Leadership says the more you move up in any organization, the more likely lack of objective feedback is to derail your career. Mm. I think that's doubly true in a family business. So for the listeners, if you said the biggest risk to derail your career as a leader is not getting feedback, if you take nothing away from this podcast, but that that would be important. The second one that I jokingly used to say to the MBA students, if you're thinking of getting a tattoo, get this. A Gallup poll in the U.S. found that the number one reason people leave a job is a bad boss. So if you need inspiration not to lose the best talent in your family's business, it's become a better boss, become a better leader. 
And then the third one, and I want to come back to your question about developing the capacity of the family, is a quote from Einstein. Let me see if I have it there. But it basically says the mindset that created the problem isn't going to be the mindset that solves the problem. That goes back to that capacity, that vertical development. So I believe, Rami, and I, you know, I've spent a lot of my life on this, is because businesses are changing so quickly, Blockbuster to Netflix, you know, or taxi cabs to Uber, um, because the world is changing so quickly, because more and more of my clients are looking at selling, I think seeing the family as the enduring unit means, so if you accept that, where a family in some kind of series of enterprises, a family office, a charitable foundation, two businesses, then it's incumbent to say more than ever before, the family's got to work on developing this capacity. We have to be vulnerable. We have to work on our egos. We have to have the difficult conversation. The research shows after that, the structures and policies and the other stuff is important, but that should be step two. Now, no, no lawyer is going to write a document that allows you and me to have a deep conversation. And if there's you know, one piece of advice I would give to families, learn to have the deep, deep, difficult conversation respectfully. That's the essence of what capacity means. And I see the families that do that, it pays off. The families that don't do it, it it's always the bump under the carpet they keep tripping on. I, lo I like that. I love what you said. I think there's a lot of takeaway from that, uh, what you just said, and very important. And Again, just as a sort of maybe a little bit of a final question, what I would love to know is like, we talk to a lot of family businesses that are in, in what seems to be like an impossible situation. Now, these impossible situations come along, not just once a generation, but multiple times, as we know, right? Like we, we feel like we are with our backs against the wall more than once in our entrepreneurial lives. And I do feel, and this is maybe my impression, but you, you please correct me if I'm wrong, but I do feel like there are more tools today and more awareness today and there's more material and advice available today on how to get out of these problems and how to hone our leadership skill than before. Now, this might be my impression, but I feel like there's tons of tools today available really to a family business leader in distress to, uh, to tap into much more than there used to be. So my next question is like, you know, if you, if you had to say like, look, have these things in your toolkit to get out of that tight spot at any given time, what would those tools be? Just as a takeaway for our listeners to understand, okay, well, these are things, these are reliable things that will at least dislodge my thinking about the current situation so I can move on. Yeah, I would say, you know, a lot of families I work with, and you referenced this, feel like they're in a bubble. They don't have a context. So join a family business program, you know, join a network, connect with other family businesses, go to a conference, uh, start to get educated. I would say, really, if you want to commit to your family's well-being and have it be a strategic advantage to all 10 of us, develop a shared practice, learn to get some feedback, consider meditation or mindfulness, get a coach. You know, I, I can't tell you in today's world, so few of us have a neutral place where we can sit down and say, I'm overwhelmed. I think I want to quit. If you say that to your spouse, they're going to panic. If you say that to your employees, they're going to panic. But a coach would say, let's talk about it. Uh, consider a consultant that's more of a fitness coach versus a firefighter. I think waiting until you have a heart attack is not when you want to call the fitness coach. Waiting until there's you know something near a lawsuit is not the ideal time to call a consultant. So find the right people, find the right practice, 
and create space for the family to connect. You know, a colleague of mine who I admire greatly, Andrew Kite, says, how often do you talk, how long do you talk, and how deeply do you talk? Intimacy, to use that word again, takes time. You can't create intimacy with texting. You can't create intimacy with, you know, short letters and stuff. You have to sit like we are, looking at each other, talking to one another, and creating space. So, again, the difficult conversation, that capacity is more important than anything else. Everything else can be worked out after that. Don't you just love the fact that in a highly technology-driven world, it still comes down to simple human relationships and behavior? Still boils down to that. I think the robots haven't taken over yet, and they probably won't won't ever be able to be as complicated as we are. So there you go. We win. So, <laughs> Greg, thank you very much for talking to us uh, on this episode, and thank you for uh, telling us about your ideas, and uh, I hope we can continue the conversation. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes. 